Chapter 4, Part A of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter 4, Part A Man Triumphant 2. Everything I had visualized in the broker's office turned out too pessimistically accurate. Consolidated Pemmican and Allied Concentrates was nothing but a mailing address in one of the most forlorn of Manhattan buildings, long before jettisoned by the tide of commerce. The factory, no bigger than a very small house, was a broken-windowed affair whose solid brick construction alone saved it from total demolition at the playful hands of the local children. The roof had long since fallen in, and symbolical grass and weeds had pushed their way through cracks in the floor to flourish in a sickly and surreptitious way. The whole concern, until my stock purchase, had been the chattel and creature of one button Gwinnett Fleas. In appearance he was such a genuine Yankee, lean and sharp with a slight stoop and prying eyes, that one quite expected a straw to protrude from between his thin lips, or have him draw from his pocket a wooden nutmeg and offer it for sale. After getting to know him, I learned this apparent shrewdness was a pure defense mechanism, that he was really an artless and ingenuous soul, who had been taught by other hands the swindle he practiced for many years, and had merely continued it because he knew no way of making an honest living. He was, like myself, unattached, and disarmed whatever lingering suspicions of him I might have by offering to share his quarters with me until I should have found suitable accommodations. The poor fellow was completely at my mercy and I not only forbore generously to press my advantage, but made him vice-president of the newly reorganized concern, permitting him to buy back a portion of the stock he had sold. The boom in the market having sent our shares up to an abnormal one-half, we flooded our brokers with selling offers, at the same time spreading rumors, by no means exaggerated, of the firm's instability, buying back control when consolidated pemmican reached its norm of one-sixteenth. We made no fortunes on this transaction, but I was enabled to look ahead to a year on a more comfortable economic level than ever before. But it was by no means in my plans merely to continue to milk the corporation. I am, I hope, not without vision, and I saw consolidated pemmican under my direction turned into an active and flourishing industry. Its very decrepitude, I reasoned, was my opportunity. Starting from scratch and working with nothing, I would build a substantial structure. One of the new businesses which had sprung up was that of personally conducted tours of the grass. After the experience of Goots and myself, parachute landings had been ruled out as too hazardous. But someone happily thought of the use of snowshoes, and it was on these clumsy means that tourists, at a high cost and at less than snail's pace, tramped wonderingly over the tamed menace. My thought then, as I explained to Fleas, was to reactivate the factory and sell my product to the sightseers. Food, high in calories and small in bulk, was a necessity on their excursions, and nourishing pemmican high in protein quickly replaced the cloying and messy candy bar. We made no profit, but we suffered no loss, and the factory was in actual operation, so that no snoopers could ever accuse us of selling stock in an enterprise with a purely imaginary existence. I liked New York. 
It accorded well with my temperament, and I wondered how I had ever endured those weary years far from the center of the country's financial life, its theaters, and its great human drama. Give me the old Times Square in the East Fifties any day, and you can keep Death Valley in functional architecture. I was at home at last, and I foresaw a future of slow but sure progress toward a position of eminence and respectability. The undignified days of Miss Francis and La Facesi faded from my mind, and I was aware of the grass only as a cause for selling our excellent pemmican. I won't say I didn't read the occasional accounts of the weed appearing in Time or the newspapers, or watch films of it in the movies with more than common interest, but it was no longer an engrossing factor in my life. I was now taken up with larger concerns, working furiously to expand my success, and for a year after leaving the intelligencer I doubt if I gave it more than a minute's thought a day. The band of salt remained an impregnable bulwark. Where the winter rains leached it, new tons of the mineral replaced those washed away. Constant observation showed no advance. If anything, the edge of the grass impinging directly on the salt was sullenly retreating. The central bulk remained, a vast obstinate mass, but most people thought it would somehow end by consuming itself, if indeed this doom were not anticipated by fresh scatterings of salt striking at its vitals as soon as the rain ceased. No more than any other reader, then, was I disquieted by the following small item in my morning paper. Freak Weed Stirs Speculation San Diego, March 7th, A.P. An unusual patch of Bermuda grass discovered growing in one of the city park's flower beds here today caused an excited flurry among observers. Reaching to a height of nearly four feet and defying all efforts of the park gardeners to uproot it, the vivid green interloper reminded fearful spectators of the plague which overran Los Angeles two years ago. Scientists were reassuring, however, as they pointed out that the giantism of the Los Angeles devil grass was not transmissible by seed, and that no stolons or rhizomes of the abnormal plant had any means of traveling to San Diego, protected as it is by the band of salt confining the Los Angeles growth. I was even more confident, for I had seen with my own eyes the shoots grown by Miss Francis from seeds of the inoculated plant. A genuine freak this time, I thought, and promptly forgot the item would have forgotten it i should say had i not an hour later received a telegram return instantly can use your impressions of new grass lafacity i knew from the fact he had used only nine of the ten words paid for he considered the situation serious the answer prompted by impulse would i knew not be transmitted by the telegraph company and on second thought i saw no reason why i should not take advantage of the editor's need business was slack and I was overworked. A succession of petty annoyances had driven me almost to a nervous breakdown, and the vacation at the expense of the new Los Angeles Daily Intelligencer sounded pleasantly restful after the serious work of grappling with industrial affairs. Of course, I did not need their paltry few dollars, but at the moment some of my assets were frozen, and a weekly paycheck would be temporarily convenient, saving me the bother of liquidating a portion of my smaller investments. Besides, if, as was barely possible, this new growth was in some unbelievable way an extension of the old, it would, of course, ruin our sales of pemmican to the tourists, and it behooved me to be on the spot. I therefore answered, Consider double former salary wire transportation. 
Next day, the great transcontinental plane powder-pigeoned along the runway of the magnificent new Los Angeles airport. I was in no great hurry to see the editor, but took a taxi instead to the headquarters of the American Alpinists Incorporated, where there was frank worry over the news, and acknowledgment that no further consignments of pemmican would be accepted until the situation became more settled. I left their offices in a thoughtful mood. Pausing only to wire fleas to unload as much stock as he could, for even if this were only a temporary scare it would undoubtedly affect the market, I finally drove to the intelligencer. Knowing Lafacity, I hardly expected to be received with either cordiality or politeness, but I was not quite prepared for the actual salute. A replica of his original office had been devised, even to the shabby letters on the door, and he was seated in his chair beneath the gallery of cartoons. He began calmly enough when I entered, speaking in a low, almost gentle tone, helping himself to snuff between sentences, but gradually working up into a quite artistic crescendo. Ah, Wiener, as you yourself would undoubtedly put it in your inimitable way, a bad penny always turns up. I could not say canis revertit suum vomitem, for it would invert a relationship. The puke has returned to the dog. It is a sad thought that the listless exercise which eventuated in your begetting was indulged in by two whose genes and chromosomes united to produce a male rather than a female child. For think, Wiener, if you had been born a woman, with what gusto would you have peddled your flaccid flesh upon the city streets and offered your miserable dog's body to the reluctant use of undiscriminating customers? You are the paradigmatic whore, Wiener, and I weep for the physiological accident which condemns you to sell your servility rather than your vulva. Ah, Wiener, it restores my faith in human depravity to have you around to attempt your petty confidence tricks on me once more. I rejoice to find I had not overestimated mankind as long as I can see one aspect of it embodied in your homely face and bad complexion, as the great Gilbert so mildly put it. I shall give orders to triple-lock the petty cash, to count the stamp money diligently, to watch all checks for inept forgery. Welcome back to the intelligencer, and be grateful for nature's mistakes, since they afford you employment as well as existence. But enough of the friendly garrulousness of an old man whose powers are failing. Remove your unwholesome-looking person from my sight and convey the decrepit vehicle of your spirit to San Diego. It is but a gesture. I expect no coherent words from your clogged and sputtery pen, but while I am sufficiently like yourself to deceive the public into thinking you have written what they read, I am not yet great enough scoundrel to do so without your visiting the scene of your presumed labors. Go! And do not stop on the way to draw expense money from the cashier, for she has strict orders not to pay it. Jealousy. Nothing but jealousy, I thought, first of my literary ability and now of my independence of his crazy whims. I turned my back deliberately and walked slowly out to show my contempt for his rantings. In my heart now, 
There was little doubt the new grass was an extension of the old, and it didn't take more than a single look at the overrun park to confirm this. The same creeping runners, growing perceptibly from instant to instant, the same brilliant color, the same towering central mass gorged with food. I could have described it line by line and blade by blade in my sleep. I wasted no more time gazing at it, but hurried away after hardly more than a minute's inspection. I could take no credit for my perceptivity, since everyone in San Diego knew as well as I that this was no duplicate freak, but the same, the identical, the fearsome grass. But a quite understandable conspiracy had been tacitly entered into. The knowledge was successfully hushed until property could be disposed of before it became quite worthless. The conspiracy defeated itself, however, with so many frantic sellers competing against each other, and the news was out by the time the first of my new columns appeared in the Intelligencer. The first question which occurred to those of us calm enough to escape panic was, how had the weed jumped the salt band? It was answered simultaneously by many learned professors, whose desire to break into print and share the front page with the terrible grass overcame their natural academic reticence. There was no doubt that originally the peculiar veracity of the inoculated plant had not been inherited, but it was equally uncontroverted that somehow, during the period it had been halted by the salt, a mutation had happened, and now every wind blowing over the weed carried seeds no longer innocent but bearing embryos of the destroyer. Terror ran before the grass like a herald. The shock felt when Los Angeles went down was multiplied tenfold. Now there was no predictable course men could shape their actions to avoid. No longer was it possible to watch and chart the daily advance of a single body so a partially accurate picture could be formed of what might be expected tomorrow. Instead of one mass, there were countless ones. At the whim of a chance wind or bird, seeds might alight in an area apparently safe and overwhelm a community miles away from the living glacier. No place was out of range of the attack. No square foot of land kept any value. The stock market crashed, and I congratulated myself on having sent Flea's orders to sell. A day or two later, the exchanges were closed, and, shortly after, the banks. Business came to a practical standstill. The great industries shut down, and all normal transactions of daily life were conducted by means of barter. For the first time in three-quarters of a century, the farmer was top dog. His eggs and milk, his wheat and corn and potatoes, he could exchange for whatever he fancied, and on his own terms. Fortunately for starving city dwellers, his appetite for manufactured articles and for luxuries was insatiable. Their automobiles, fur coats, costume jewelry, washing machines, files of the National Geographic, and their period furniture left the city flat for the farm, to come back in the more acceptable form of steaks, butter, fowl, and turnips. The whole elaborate structure of money and credit seemed to disappear overnight, like some tenuous stream. The frenzied actions of the human beings had no effect on the grass. The salt band still stood inviolate, as did smaller counterparts hastily laid around the earlier of the seed-borne growth, but everywhere else the grass swept ahead like a tidal wave, its speed seemingly increased by the months of repression behind. It swallowed San Diego in a gulp, and leaped beyond the United States to take in Baja California in one swift downward lick.
It sprang upon the deserts whose lack of water was no deterrent, now always sending little groups ahead like paratroopers or fifth columnists. They established positions till the main body came up and consolidated them. It curled up the high mountains, leaving only the snow on their peaks unmolested, and it jumped over struggling rivers with the dexterity of a girl playing hopscotch. It lunged eastward into Arizona and Nevada. It swarmed north up the San Joaquin Valley through Fresno and spilled over the lip of the high Sierras toward Lake Tahoe. New Los Angeles, its back protected by the Salton Sea, was, like the original one, subjected to a pincer movement which strangled the promising life from it before it was two years old. Forced to move again, La Facesie characteristically demanded the burden fall upon the employees of the paper, paying them off in scrip on the poor excuse that no money was available. I saw no future in staying with this sinking ship, and eager to be back at the center of things, please wrote me that the large stock of pemmican which had been accumulating without buyers could now be very profitably disposed of. I severed my connection for the second time with the intelligencer, and returned to my proper sphere. This, of course, did not mean that I failed to follow each step of the grass. Such a course would have been quite impossible, since its every move affected the life and fortune of every citizen. By some strange freak, it spared the entire coast north of Santa Barbara. Whether it had some disinclination to approach salt water, it had been notably slow in its original advance westward, or whether it was sheer accident, San Luis Obispo, Monterey, and San Francisco remained untouched as the cities to the south and east were buried under grassy avalanches. This odd mercy raised queer hopes in some. Perhaps their town or their state would be saved. The prostration of the country, which had begun with the first wave of panic, could not be allowed to continue. The government moved in and seized first the banks and then the railroads. Abandoned real estate was declared forfeit and open to homesteading. Prices were pegged, and farmers forced to pay taxes in produce. Although these measures restored a similitude of life to the nation, it remained but a feeble imitation of its previous self. Many of the idle factories failed to reopen, others moved with painful caution. Goods, already scarce, disappeared almost completely, and at the same time a reckless disregard of formerly sacred symbols seized upon the people. The grass was coming, so what good was the lot on which they were paying installments? The grass was coming, so why gather together the dollars to meet the interest on the mortgage? The grass was coming. What was the use of depositing money in the bank, which would probably go bust tomorrow? The inflation would have been worse had it not been for the pegged prices and other stern measures. The glut on the labor market was tremendous, and wages reached the vanishing point in a currency which would buy little. Suddenly the United States, which had so long boasted of being the richest country in the world, found itself desperately poor. Government work projects did little to relieve the suffering of the proletariat deaths from malnutrition mounted, and the feeble strikes in the few operating industries were easily and quickly crushed by starving strike-breakers, ashamed of their deed, yet desperately eager to feed their hungry families. Riots broke out in New York and Detroit, but the police were fortunately well-fed, and the arms wielding the blackjacks which crushed the skulls of the undernourished rioters were stout. 
there was a sweeping revival of organized religion, and men too broke to afford the neighborhood movie flocked to the churches. Brother Paul, now on a national hookup, repeated his exhortations to all Christians, urging them to join their Savior in the midst of the grass. There was great agitation for restraining him. More reserved pastors pointed out that he was responsible for increasing the national suicide rate, but the Federal Communications Commission took no action against him, possibly because, as some said, it was cheaper to let a percentage of the surplus population find an ecstatic death than to feed it. On political maps, the United States had lost not one foot of territory. Population statistics showed it harbored as many men, women, and children as before. Not one-tenth of the national wealth had been destroyed by the grass, or a sixth of the country given up to it, yet it had done what seven wars and many vicissitudes had failed to do. It brought the country to the nadir of its existence, to a hopeless despondency unknown at Valley Forge. At this desperate point, the federal government decided it could no longer temporize with the clamor for using atomic power against the grass. All the arguments so weighty at first became insignificant against the insolent facts. It was announced in a Washington press conference that as soon as arrangements could be made, the most fearful of all weapons would be employed. End of chapter 4, part A